Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. If there's one mineral you should be worried about not getting enough of, of course, it is magnesium. You've heard me talk about it. The body's master mineral with over 300 critical reactions, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, even digestion, is all influenced by magnesium. I remember when I was doing endocrine rotations, my fellow used to pound on us about magnesium and their problems, two big problems. Magnesium has been largely missing from the U.S. soil since the 1950s, which explains why it's estimated that up to 80% of the population may be deficient. And also, most supplements contain only one or two forms of magnesium, when in reality there are seven that your body needs to benefit from. If you take that latter fact into consideration, is it not logical to conclude that 99% of the population is likely deficient in two or more of the essential forms of magnesium? Good news is, is that when you do get all seven forms of magnesium, pretty much every function, it gets upgraded from your brain to your sleep. Uh, pain and inflammation even can be affected. It's all improving and it improves fast. That's why I'm excited about what my friends over at BioOptimizers, makers of industry-leading digestive supplements, have just created. The research team has recently formulated the ultimate magnesium supplement with all seven forms of the mineral. They even include trace amounts of something called monoatomic magnesium, which helps makes all the other forms more bioavailable. This is the most complete magnesium product ever created, and until or unless someone comes out with a better one, I suggest you give this a try. Bioptimizers calls the product Magnesium Breakthrough, and they're running a special promotion for our listeners at bioptimizers.com slash drew. That is B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash D-R-E-W. You get an additional 10% off the normal package price with coupon code Dr. Drew. With this simple one action, you can reverse magnesium deficiency in all its forms and upgrade the performance of your body and possibly even how you look and feel. The Magnesium Breakthrough promotion is only while quantities last at buyoptimizers.com slash Drew. That is B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash D-R-E-W. And make sure you use the coupon code Dr. Drew to get 10% off your order. Hey everyone, welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, keep the winds in the sail. That uh, old... Corolla Pirate Ship, support the people that support us. We really do appreciate it. And uh, don't forget to head over to drdrew.com. We've got a bunch of stuff going on there now. I do a stream pretty much every day. Uh, if you sign up at drdrew.tv, you get a blast when we go out with it, at least when we're in our studio there. Uh, we literally try to, wherever we go, try to do one of those streams. And we've got some interesting guests coming in there, people like Kelly Victory and Dr. Samadhi and just interesting folk. Uh, Dennis Quaid, I think, is coming on that very soon. And, uh, of course, over at your mom's house, the After Dark. Don't forget that. Uh, and uh, we will see you all there. Do sign up for these things. And uh, at Dr.com, sign up in the contact list. We appreciate that. Today's guest is Aaron Tyler. The book is The Bad One, a memoir about growing up a goat and not the good kind. <laughs> it's available anywhere you get books. Aaron's story of being scapegoated as a child. And I, I, I really am interested in just the, the topic of scapegoating generally. You can follow Aaron at Aaron Tyler, E-R-I-N Tyler, T-Y-L-E-R, design.com. Twitter is at BunnyBlog and then Instagram at Aaron underscore Lee, L-E-I-G-H underscore Tyler, T-Y-L-E-R. Uh, Aaron, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So scapegoating. You know, every family <laughs> has a scapegoat. Uh, well, not every family. Let, let me put it this way. Alcoholic families have a scapegoat. Am I on to something mm -hmm. here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, sometimes when parents grow up in, a, uh, in an alcoholic family and they choose not to drink, uh, you know, that alcoholism ends up being a trauma that gets worked out on the next generation of kids. And that's kind of what happened with me, especially with my, my mother's side of the family. So she, she's where the gene comes in, right? 
Mm-hmm. She would be where the gene comes in, probably a little bit on my dad's side too. But this is definitely a story of alcoholism. Well, it, it's it, if you've got alcoholism in the family, you either get the gene or you marry one. That's kind of how it works. If you don't get the gene, then you marry an alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. Well, that might be what happened there. But there's certainly a gene in my mom's side for sure. And yeah. so when did – tell us what kind of – give us a sketch of what happened and when you became aware it was uh, scapegoating. Uh, I was aware at a very young age and, it, and I was very – extremely confused uh, because I was being, you know, just gaslit into uh, this false narrative that I was bad and I was burdensome and I was all of these negative things. Um, even though, you know, I would leave the house and I would go out and I would get straight A's and no detentions and everybody loved me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, there was this massive level of confusion always uh, with my parents. And, you know, I would have these feelings, um, these feelings of, of you know, being uh, so um, invisible and so angry at times and so, like all of these feelings and, and anything that I felt that um, – was not useful. Mm-hmm. I was told was a selfish feeling and I was hmm. not allowed to feel it. Um, and, you know, it, it didn't seem to, there was never any logic to my personhood. I was always told I was bad, 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 um, even when I did good things. And so I was just intensely confused all the time. Who am I? Am I this bad person or, um, you know, am I, you know, just a person? Did, did, um, did your family it, have other roles? Was there a, a hero and a mascot and all those usual alcoholic family member roles? Uh, there was a golden child for the sure. hero. Yeah. Mm. Yes. There was a golden child. My sister could do no wrong. Um, uh-huh. And of course she was, you know, just kind of like a replica of my mother. So um, is she, well, that, that's, that's, so that suggests also that there, which is often in alcoholic families, a moderate amount of narcissism. They're part of your mom, which again, she had alcoholic family members. She got injured in childhood herself. So there's the, and, and alcoholics tend to have a lot of narcissistic stuff, but with a narcissist, you're either all in or all out. And for some yes. reason you weren't, you weren't reflecting back to your mom, her idealized needs of being all in. And the sister got that early, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And and that was the problem. It was either be the extension, make mom feel good mm-hmm, about mom, mm-hmm. or, you know, you're you're out. You're out. And I was definitely out. Again, just curious, did you did you end up having relationships, at least early in life, where you were trying to make a narcissist happy? <laughs> I mean, those were my only relationships, right. you know, okay. being this household. I always had narcissistic boyfriends. They always withheld affection. <laughs> Jesus, oh, Aaron. You know, I mean, it was, it was you should write a book. Recreation. You should write a book about this. <laughs> I know it's almost like you wrote like the best book ever about narcissism. Um, and and thank you for that, by the way, because I read that book and it was so incredibly helpful when I was piecing together what happened in my in my primary years. I was like, well, Doctor Drew, it's almost like he saw my family. Yeah, they're pretty <laughs> common now. Totally now, now, now we're living out the latter stages of everybody being narcissistic. Adam and I always talk about how all roads lead to narcissism for pointed anything that's going on in our society and boom there it is oh my god it i mean it's the underlying cause of everything yep yes ma'am yes ma'am it is so frustrating and upsetting to see Uh, but yeah i definitely recreated and recreated with therapists with boyfriends with friendships therapists tell me about this Therapist, yes. There's a really great story from this book about how I finally pieced together what my, you know, mother and father were really kind of up to, and that I got into a relationship with an extraordinarily narcissistic therapist. Mm. 
uh, who, in, you know, under the guise of trying to help me, tried to control me and get me to write a book about her. Oh, my God. Did you report her <laughs> to the state, please? Yes. Well, I mean, I basically just cut the cord there. Oh, um, and that was a little bit scary. There were some very, very scary, uh, super, um, I, I would say probably a narcissistic injury on her part. Um, a lot of really, really creepy behavior, but I managed to get away from her and, and, and I'm fine. She, well, should we say this woman's name? Oh, goodness, no. Well, I <laughs> want people to not. not go to her. Where, what city was this in? Uh, this was in Arizona. I don't even want to say this. All right, the so city. just be on your alert if you're seeing therapists in Arizona and the boundaries yes. don't seem good or it seems like uh, your needs are uh, secondary to the therapist. Yes, uh, yes, indeed. indeed. Oh, my God. And so – you're so you're out. You're the scapegoat. Let's talk about scapegoating generally before we get into how you recovered. What, what, what is your sort of construct on scapegoating? Uh, you know, I, I think that scapegoating is a way for traumatized people to work out anything uh, that is negative. Um, so proje- that they don't want to feel projection, and they don't want to believe about themselves. And I think it's a way for a family like mine, an alcoholic family, uh, to stay whole. I think right. there has to be this other um, that they lay the sins upon and they send it out into the desert. And, right. you know, I, I've certainly seen it genera- generationally. Yeah. Um, I definitely saw scapegoating in my, you know, in the previous generation and maybe even before that. You know, there always seems to be one person that just can't get it right, can't get it together, and that everybody just beats up on. Um, and I think this is a way that a lot of these families, these def- dysfunctional families kind of work out uh, their stuff in a way that that leaves them all feeling safe about the reputation of the family. And so societies do this too, right? And so Aztecs would kill somebody every morning as a scapegoat and everyone would gather together and whatever aggressions they had towards one another would get focused on the one whose heart they pulled out and threw down the the stairs. And sort of the more traumatized somebody is, uh, the more – the more the intensity of the scapegoating, the more violent the scapegoating, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the sacrifice tends to be the empathic kid who is saying, hey, there's something not quite right about this right. tribe or this right. family. That's right. Well, now um, you're out. Now you're out. Yeah. You're on the yeah. outside. The one who sort of speaks up and says, hey, maybe, we, you know, we need therapy. Uh, that ends up being, you know, identified the, the scapegoat. So how did that happen for you? How did you start realizing you, you – where you were and what you needed to do or how did that come to be? I did not realize until quite late. Um, I was naturally very empathic and I just got on the story and colluded with them. And I actually uh, became so depressed and so suicidal that I attempted suicide in 1998. I was 21 years old. I was in college and I attempted suicide. Um, And obviously that, that was a failure. Thank God. What what year Um, of college was that? Uh, that would be my junior year of college. And what, where were you at the time? I was at Rochester Institute of Technology. Wow. Studying graphic design. Yeah, I mean, it should have been, you know, the best year of my life, but I was suicidal. I just could not live with this this negative narrative any longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and eight months later, my uncle, who I believe was probably the scapegoat child of my father's family, mm-hmm. um, actually did uh, commit suicide wow. at the age of 42. And it was while sitting at his funeral and looking at that coffin and, and thinking that 
that could have been me or that will be me soon that I had these, these first kind of, you know, unsanctioned thoughts of like, maybe this, maybe, uh, maybe I'm right. Maybe these feelings of anger that, you know, and these thoughts that um, I'm not bad. Maybe this family is just a mess. Maybe those things are correct. And so, you know, what I did is I began a a daily practice of writing and I would just write down anything that came up that felt, you know, foreign or, or naughty or unsanctioned or, you know, but made me feel good. And uh, that radically altered the trajectory of my life. Tell me more. What, where'd you go next? I kind of, you know, I mean, I bounced around um, and I, I just did a lot of writing. You know, it was my daily practice every day to get up and write and really examine who I was as a person. Um, had a lot of, again, recreations of those formative relationships, bad boyfriends, bad breakups, things like that. Mm. Um, talk talk about that more about that a little bit because you know so many people that are caught in these cycles of one one you know this guy wasn't supposed to be like the other ones and he turned out to be and blah 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 they you know the patterns that people get into uh, which are really ultimately broken pickers right they they can't they can't right. uh, they're attracted to the wrong kind of people and that's just people don't often think about or understand how attractions work and you're attracted to the unfinished business of your childhood or the trauma from your childhood. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's a way of, of working out that trauma. Here, to put it very bluntly, I dated Tucker Max for a year in 2003. What is the matter with <laughs> you, Aaron? My God. That was before he went into analysis. It says it all. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. He was basically a chupacabra back then. <laughs> I dated him for like a year. We're, we're good friends now. So I, you, okay, I, I, tell you, I've, listen, I've, I've been around Tucker forever. I love him. And his uh, he's got a quote on the back of the book. One of the best books I've ever read by one of the best writers of her generation. Thank you, Tucker. So there you go. Things are cool now. But he yeah. he he had a massive transformation. Just uh, it, w- it was interesting. I, you know, narcissists normally don't get better, and he uh, did. Yeah, he busted his butt for it. Let me tell you. Yeah, a lot of tears, a lot of hard work, and uh, he should be very proud of himself. Yeah, for that. it was. It was. He he got he his his dropping into analysis with tremendous speed. And then I haven't talked to him in a long time, but but I, I'm sure it slowed down after that. But boy, he was in it and willing very quickly, which is unusual. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, there were a lot of good qualities to him, but you yeah. know, in the time that I was dating him, he could not have been um, a worse person. <laughs> he was really, really awful, um, and I was drawn to him for all the wrong reasons. And you know, I mean, he was a recreation. You know. But, the, the control and the, and the, you know, I mean, he would, he was very engaged in that cycle where they love bomb and, you know, and they draw you in and then they push you away and, and devalue you and then push you away. Just the classic, classic narcissistic features. Um, and, you know, I mean, I just didn't really understand. I mean, because the, you know, the narrative constantly was we're a perfect family. We're a perfect family. Yeah. You, the external, you are the problem of this family. So I, I always felt sort of blind with regard to my primary relationships, because, you know, to me, they just brought me so much anger, but I was not allowed to have that anger or feel that anger. And I was not allowed to examine who those people really were. Did anybody else in the family get well, or did you getting well cause you to be completely out for good? Oh, I'm out. Oh, I'm out. Sure. Too bad your mom didn't go. Your mom okay now or is she getting sicker? 
Um, you know, she gets better every, every year. And I, I do think this is very unconscious for her. I don't think that she's very in touch with sure. um, her aggression. Oh, of course not. People don't do this with, with ill in their heart, even though it comes out that way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. let's go back to your, now you're dating Tucker Max, the Tucker Maxes of the world. You're going to therapy. Are you going to therapy while you're dating these guys? Uh, I was not. No, I was not in therapy. Um, too much turmoil. And I think, uh, you know, I mean, I thought that I could just write and, and that would be enough uh, and, and really has not been enough. Of the right. Website. You know, I'm a big believer in talk therapy. Oh, my God. You, you need you need that other brain metabolizing things for you. We, oh, we, my do, God, we just you do. Yeah, we just don't access <laughs> things by ourselves. We just don't. And once we, you know, have access in the context of a safe holding relationship, then we need that person to metabolize it, reflect it, hand it, hand it back to us in a, in a sort of a new new reflection. Yeah, yep. yeah, and you know, building trust with people like that has been uh, quite the adventure. I'm dying to know more about the, the the fucked up therapist. Can you can you go a little more into it? Because <laughs> yeah. maybe we yeah. can tell people, you know, cautionary tale what to watch out for. Yeah, um, she. I didn't see her coming. Um, because she was extremely manipulative. Hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not a clinician, but, uh, it seems to me like she definitely had borderline personality oh, disorder or something like that. Yeah, perfect. Um, yeah, a lot of fantasy, a lot of manipulation. Uh, it was either I was the best patient ever or oh. I was the devil. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, she would, um, you know, if I wasn't doing what she wanted me to do, she would diagnose me with things that I knew I didn't have. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. What, what, what were the letters after her? What were the letters after her name? Uh, she was a PhD. Sheesh. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. She was a PhD. She was very scary. Ugh. For sure. Um, How long and were when I, I just stopped coming to therapy and she started calling all of um, – my friends whose names I had mentioned in session, which is just so incredibly unethical and illegal. Um, and Why didn't you at least report, at least report that? that. I, report, report, you know what I mean? That's such yeah. a massive HIPAA violation. You could you at least do that. Yeah, though she should not have a license to practice. I'm right. just absolutely terrified of her. Mm. Um, but yeah, she, she called all my friends and told them that I was on drugs and that they found my car in the desert with blood in it, but I was gone. And really, I was just at a friend's house. And so they all just started calling me and they're like, are you okay? And um, and I said, yeah, I'm just at a friend's house. We're going to go watch a movie. Wow, you need to, you need to report this because God knows what she's going to do to somebody else. I mean, it, I don't want it to cause you any harm, but my goodness, right? right. And you, yeah. I think most states yeah. allow you to do anonymous reports, but then of course oh, she'll I did know. Not know that. that she'll, oh, but, wonderful! But, but then she'll know, you know, because of the circumstances, she'll know. But anyway, you know, terrible, terrible, yeah. terrible, terrible, terrible. And, and well, so, you know, I mean, I, I have gratitude for it because it taught me, um, you know, I mean, what in in that it was such a bonkers recreation of my relationship with my mother that it was it was very difficult to not accept at that point that, oh, my God, you know, I mean, why would I get into this situation with this woman if, uh, you know, if there wasn't something very, very wrong um, about my early years and right. And, uh, my relationship with mom. How, how did you have that insight? Because it's a pretty high order insight. Yeah. I mean, it was just getting damaged again and again after these recreations. And then finally, um, I used a lot of cognitive 
uh, cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. to get there finally in the end, going to war with that inner voice mm-hmm. um, that just told me I was bad and I was worthless and I should be ashamed of myself. I just went to war with it mm. and, and physically beat it down to the point where I just don't even hear it anymore. Uh you're using a little bit of language here and there of recovery. Did you do some Al-Anon or something in there? I have never done Al-Anon, and, and now um, and no one has ever actually recommended that I do it. But it sounds like I need to do that, and well, it sounds like I mean, you're using you're already applying some of those same principles. I'm sure. I mean, it, you know, the stuff that goes on at twelve step is is it's a like a like a menu of things that are used in professionally managed therapies also, including CBT type stuff. And just, you know, it'll be very familiar to you. But talk about the CBT. How was that done? Who did it? How long did you do it? What were the sort of the techniques so people understand what that is? So this was this was following my really cruddy relationship with this therapist. And I, I went through a phase where I just was like, okay, no more therapy. Therapists are garbage. And mm. thankfully, I've come out of that. Um, and, you know, I started to read books about CBT, um, joined a lot of, you know, just, you know, unstructured group therapies. And that was incredibly, incredibly, uh, incredibly helpful. Currently, I'm doing EMDR. Mm. And I have found that to be maybe the most powerful tool for transformation that I have ever sought out. Great. Then uh, I'm doing that um, and doing therapy about twice a week and, and still doing group therapy as well. I mean, it, I mean, it really is like in order to recover from these things, it is just therapy, therapy, therapy. Yeah. And, and I mean, look, if you'd things. mangled your leg, they, you know, have a couple of years of therapy that, you know, daily therapy, we do it on legs and knees and things. We don't think anything of it. But uh, yeah. brains somehow are supposed to need less. Which is just ridiculous. Ridiculous, now. yeah. So uh, I think most people know what EMDR is these days, which is the eye movement desensitization therapy, uh, going at sort of accessing parts of your brains that are essentially traumatized and walled off from the rest of your processes. And that's, you know, the, the goal is ultimately to integrate all the parts of the brain. And are you spo- focusing on specific traumas? Yeah, I'm I'm focusing on some some very serious traumas that actually kind of rose up after I hit publish on the book. Um, I actually sought out EMDR uh, just because I was curious about it. Some friends of mine had had great success with it, and I knew I had traumas, and I knew that I had dissociative symptoms that mm. were kind of unexplainable. Uh huh. Throughout the years, yeah, yeah, and uh, I was I was doing a lot of self sabotage leading up to the publishing of my book, and I I didn't feel comfortable with that. I felt like I should, you know, I should just this is a goal of mine. I should be able to just work through this, and and I was finding it incredibly difficult. And so I, I can, can you tell us an example, specific example of what happened? The self sabotage. Yeah, I was I was very reticent to do any of of the marketing for the book. Mm-hmm. I was very reticent to actually say, no, this is my story and that's okay. Um, I was reticent to have anything good for myself. Mm-hmm. So there were, there were just, so there were sort of inexplicable, inexplicable, what's the word I'm trying to say? Inexplicable uh, motivational states. Yeah. Inexplicable motivational states. Um, I have, I have always had difficulty with concentration and memory. Mm-hmm. Um, I have periods of my childhood that I cannot remember. Mm-hmm. I have people from my childhood that I cannot remember. And 
you know, I never really paid attention to that because that was a that was another level of trauma that I was going to get to once I got to mm-hmm. all of this drama. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I I got into EMDR and I took hold of those paddles and found out that my hippocampus is essentially just full of a horror movie of sexual abuse. Oh no! Um, what, by uh, whom? Yes, uh, um, an uncle. Yeah, yeah. So you know, that's a whole new adventure. And of course, I'm writing another book now. Um, but yeah, I'm using EMDR now. And it's it's been pretty uh, illuminating. Um, to me, really- to me, somehow, uh, instinctively, I feel like that explains even a little more the messed up therapist relationship. Because mm-hmm. w- when you've been groomed and sucked into something before, it, it's easier for somebody to groom you and suck you in. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. You know, and then- definitely. So I'm not going to lay that one at the feet of your mom. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that is, that is not her fault. Not at all. Uh, Yeah. But that has been, that has been uh, quite the adventure. So that's what I'm kind of doing now. You know, navigating, pulling these memories up, finally processing these old traumas and and moving forward. Can can you talk about that experience? Because I I know lots of people that there's various kinds of ways. I'll just, you know, preface this by saying, Things that people experience when they get EMDR, sometimes they have these really intense bodily-based experiences that they can't explain. They shake and they cry and they don't even know what's happening to them. Sometimes they go into sort of fugue states and can't come out and all kinds of things that trauma does to us. What's been your experience? That has been my experience, you know, from the very first session. Um, I My eyes literally won't move back and forth after a certain period of time because my, my body just doesn't want to feel these things. So my eyes literally stop working. So I, I actually have to use the vibrating paddles, mm. which still works the, the bilateral stimulation, which, which makes EMDR work. Um, and yeah, I, I grab onto these paddles and uh, I go back. I have very, very, um, my memories are, are extremely intact uh, but the feeling of the terror is there and it's immediate. And, mm. you, you know, I drop into it immediately and start screaming. Um, I, my very first experience with EMDR, I threw up. Um, I was screaming and uh, crying immediately and saw, um, you know, basically one, just one sexual assault. Um, and, you know, each time uh, I go back for it, I see another and another and another. And it is pretty terrifying because you will, um, you know, if you're in a, in a, an extreme case like me, and I do believe that my case is kind of extreme, um, you are going to process that trauma immediately um, that, that's been in your hippocampus. And you're going to feel the terror and you're going to uh, feel the despair and the rage and and, and all of those feelings immediately. Well, well, yeah, correct. And, and then usually what happens though is you start f- seeing it, feeling it, so to speak, from a different place as time goes on. Have you had that experience yet? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, my, my therapist, um, she has me do, you know, mental exercises after these you know, I find myself in these, you know, traumatic incidents, Mm -hmm. she'll have me go back and rescue myself. Mm -hmm. Um, That'll be my thought experiment, my thought exercise um, for the next week or so. I'll go back in and say, you know, let's, let's rescue the baby, you know, let's, let's the baby. And and so you start regulating more completely, but, but you also, because you grow so much, you start looking at it differently. You have different feelings about it. How, How long have you been doing this now? 
I've only been doing this for a couple of months. Okay, it'll, it'll start to you'll 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 get this next piece shortly, which is like you you you. There's no telling how you'll feel about your uncle as you grow and move and pull away from the the immediacy of the of the trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, some people oftentimes believe it or not. Not that he deserves any compassion, but they feel compassion, not identifying with the perpetrator, but kind of an understanding that this is also an extremely sick person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah. And somehow yeah, it, 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 re- it relieves you of some of the guilt and shame and all the things that you, you – as kids, you feel responsible for the whole thing, right? Yeah, I think I've, I've carried that responsibility my whole life. Yeah. You know, I've carried all of these feelings of guilt and shame that, that are very external. And actually, I, I, I have nothing but gratitude for actually coming to, to EMDR and, and discovering all of these things because I thought they were just parts of my personhood. I, I thought I literally could not focus on anything for more than 20 seconds at a time. Well, no, I've just been in a dissociative state for 40 years. Um, and that's, you know, okay. I don't have some sort of, you know... Uh, a learning disability. It's nothing like that. Um, I don't have to feel guilty or ashamed of myself at any time. I don't have to, you know, um, believe these limiting beliefs that I have that I am not worthy of good things, that I don't deserve good things. Um, I don't have to feel that anymore. That's all external. What age did this, this horrible stuff start? Uh, it started at, and it, it's still kind of, I'm still trying to put the story together. It started at four and I believe it ended at eight. Oh my God. Is, is it possible the scapegoating, some of the behaviors that the, your parents were rejecting were related to that trauma that they didn't know? Um, I think so. I think that made me much more sensitive mm-hmm. uh, to what my parents were doing and saying. And I, I remember being very attached to them, following them around, observing them, kind of therapizing them, mm. um, and it kind of forcing myself on them almost um, in ways that I think my sister didn't because I don't think she was experiencing – she might have, but um, she I don't think she was experiencing abuse to that extent. Oh, is this I uncle went, abusing all the kids everywhere? I have no clue. Have you ever talked to your sister about it? Um, I have sort of briefly, um, you know, and, and I don't know if she has done this work herself. Obviously that's her journey. I can't force her to, you know, to feel, to be re-traumatized by these things. Oh, yeah. It's her choice to do this or not, but I, I have let her know. Yeah. Who, whose brother was this? Uh, this was no one's brother. This was the husband of an aunt. Oh, does she know about this? Yeah. She knows. Um, no. He divorced out of the family about 30 years ago. He uh, was very, quite obviously sociopathic. He um, mm. he engaged in all kinds of high-risk behaviors, extraordinarily pathologically selfish. Um, he had like a double family going. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And he, uh, he was gone, kind of disowned his children. He's been a deadbeat dad for many, many years. So it's their blessing. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, thank God. Yes, thank God exactly. He, um, I'm sure he did some damage before he left, though. Awful. Uh, okay. I I hate to wish death on some people, but some people are. are <laughs> I do. God. <laughs> some people uh, are too gone. Even though, I mean, it would be nice to uh, to come to a place with 
with him of empathy. It'd be rough. It'd be rough. Uh, The the dissociative symptoms, uh, have those emerged in the EMDR? Uh, You know, I mean, the dissociative symptoms have been something I've struggled with my whole life. I've always had night terrors. In fact, there's a a very, very um, understandable illustration from my book. Um, I'm hanging over a pit of snapping snakes. Ugh. Uh, from a tree limb, uh, which, you know, I mean, obviously it makes a lot of sense in hindsight. Um, but those were the kind of nightmares that I would have. And I never had good dreams. I always had nightmares. Uh, always had emotion, big, big, powerful waves of emotion uh, that were very uncontrollable. Um, you know, I mean, I was attracted to those those really bad guys, got abused a lot, kicked around a lot. Um yeah, I mean, the, the, the symptoms and the signs were always there, but, I, you know, I really believe that the brain kind of blocks things things out until you're capable of processing them. Mm. Talk to me about the cycles you discuss in your book. Yeah, the, the love bombing. Um, yeah, this is, a, this is a really unfortunate cycle that happens um, with narcissists. And, you know, what they do is they, they bomb you with love. This is called a love bombing phase. Um, and... You know, you can do no wrong and it's all romance and it's roses and everything is great and you're perfect and they make you feel so great about yourself Um, until, you know, they have control over you and then they isolate you. You know, they take you away from anybody who could be like, hey, what's going on there? Maybe you should uh, get away from him. Uh, They isolate you. Then they devalue you. You know, suddenly nothing you do is okay, um, and nothing you are is okay. And then they abandon you in order to feel, um, or, or they abuse you, because it's the, they, yeah, the cycle of abuse too. Same, same phenomena. Yeah, I mean, yeah, abuse. Yeah. I, I'm talking about obviously all kinds of abuse. You know, that that's this is all the cycle of this is all emotional abuse you're describing, but they can abuse in many ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think of that's a. A big cause of, of you know um, domestic abuse, so. and then they come back with an idealized reunion. It's because I yes. love you and so then, much, no, and then they're back, and then the cycle uh, perpetuates itself. And each time you go through the cycle, you feel worse and worse and worse about yourself until mm-hmm. you know you just don't feel like you're you're worth a damn. Tell us more about the book. What, what are we what are we going to learn reading the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't write this book for parents who are currently scapegoating their kids because I, I, don't, I don't think there's a snowball's chance in hell of reaching them um, in any way with the, you know, the story through the eyes of their child. I, I think that's a very difficult thing to admit that you're doing, and I think it's very unconscious. Like I said, I don't think my parents had any clue that they were doing this. But I did write it for scapegoat kids to, to understand that, um, you know, if nothing else, you don't have to write. You don't have to necessarily do the things that I did, but everything is editable. You know, you can, you can change that internal narrative. You can learn to love yourself. You can learn to kick people out of your life who do not respect your boundaries. Um, all these things are learnable and, you know, life is just one big adventure and you can reinvent yourself. You had an eating disorder in the middle of this too. Yes. I, Yeah. Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty common. Yeah. <laughs> did, did that need specific treatment? I, you know, I never sought treatment specifically for eating disorders. That was something that, that just, that symptom uh, began to sort of reduce and then die out mm-hmm. based upon the other work that I was doing. Right. Yeah. 
And if anyone's experiencing stuff like this, what, what would you advise them to do first? I mean, the very first thing I'd advise you to do is get a very, very good talk therapist. And if you get the creeps from your therapist, obviously move on, find a new one. Um, I think it's very important to shop around for a great therapist. Yeah, you, take, and then yeah, you need referrals. But it's a hard thing because people don't know how to assess therapists. And oftentimes people want to leave when the going gets tough, which is exactly when they need to stay. Any advice on how to distinguish between uh, uh, just a bad fit and time to stick it out? You know, I think that if there is a discomfort within you and you recognize that that discomfort comes from you being avoidant and fearing actually building a relationship of trust, I think you need to press through that. I think you need to push through that. Right. I think that's a good thing, that fear. I think any other kinds of fears take off. But I think that, you know, if, if you are basically just afraid of, of building trust and moving through this, this uncomfortable stage of, you know, of putting yourself out there, exposing yourself to a person who could potentially hurt you, but you know that it's the right thing to do and you got to push, um, I, I think you need to work through that. Yeah, I, I agree. And now there's some pretty intense stories in this book, right? About your mom particularly. Yeah. Does she yeah. uh is she pissed? She's she's uh extremely angry. Extremely mm. angry actually. Hmm. Yeah. And and any any way to manage that or uh you know, I mean I I certainly hope so. You know, I was hoping that she understood that, you know, I mean she was only this way because she grew up in an alcoholic family and um, she has a lot of trauma and I think she's an amazing person and I love her dearly, but I can't, you know, I can't live a lie. Um, I have to be honest. I think honesty is the only way that we, you know, we stare down these, you know, multi-generational demons and actually. There's a lot of drawings in the book. Are they yours? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and are they from that time or the, th- the drawings? As you think about these particular things you're writing about, uh, it was essentially, you know, when I was writing the the final version of the manuscript, images would sort of come to mind. Mm. And I mean, I'm not a writer, so um, it was it was always, um, a, you know, when I get, would get to the end of a chapter, I would always feel as if I left a little bit on, the, you know, off the table, um, just because you know I don't have so much of, you know, a facility with words, like a, you know, a wordsmith. So um, I would, I would just sort of illustrate anything that was going on in my head, any kind of images that I saw, because I felt like it would, it would sort of complement and, and really bring you to the feeling that I was feeling. You say something interesting here. You say with, with my father, I go, no, with mom, I go back into her, into her childhood a lot to get distance and clarity. And you would do the same thing with your dad. So you would feel close to him. Explain that. Yeah, um, there. I've always felt it very, very difficult to attach to my father. He's very, very avoidant. Um, that was his damage. Mm. You know, he he spent you know so much time out in the woods or in the basement or just you know withholding. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother was just beyond controlling, just so so controlling um, to the point where uh, you know, I mean, I. I I didn't feel like I could make any choices or decisions whatsoever without um, going to her and saying, well, what would your friends think of you if I made this choice? Hmm. But but going back to her childhood, what do you, what do you mean by that? 
So, you know, going back to her childhood and going back to my father's childhood, you know, I used those exercises and I I don't necessarily know if this is exercise or if this is just obsession um, to kind of understand where they came from. Um, Because I think, you know, when you grow up in one of these families, you're very worried that you're internalizing, you know, these toxic things and that you're going to become them. Mm. And so, you know, I mean, I would go back and, and use these these thought exercises to be like, okay, I, you know, if I know what this is then maybe I can control it and maybe I can keep myself from becoming it. Did, did you ever reveal to your parents or anybody what was happening to you with the, with this uncle's? No, I actually just found out about a month ago, my brain completely blocked out all of these memories because they were so, uh, they're very violent. And there's a lot of violence there. There's, um, you know, lots of threats and lots of really horrifying material there. So my brain literally blocked it out. Were he saying, I'm going to kill your family if you tell anybody that kind of stuff? Yes. Yes. Sheesh. Oh, my God. It's just it's just too much. (laughs) It's a lot. It's a lot, Dr. Drew. (laughs) It really is. I'm I'm tired. (laughs) I get it. Uh, I'm looking at a picture of the Cindy doll. Tell me, can you tell me about that? Yeah, that's a that's sort of an imagining of of what my mother's childhood was like. Um, you know, just being dressed up and being you know sort of used as a prop, mm. and uh, you know, this kind of nor'eastern Irish Catholic alcoholic family. You know, that's that's has this presentation of hey, we're together, but really everything is just falling to pieces on the inside. And so all of the the commercial um, messaging that you see there would be um, from her parents, courtesy of her parents. It's interesting, but one of the things you put in here is that she's only a girl. College isn't necessary, which is one of the horrible things perpetrated on her generation. Yeah, horrifying. Yeah, you know, and her message to me was very much like, "No, you're going to college. You're going to college. You're going to have a, a career." You know, you're going to put your intelligence to use and you're going to be independent, which is I'm so thankful for. Yeah. That, 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 so there were things to be right, things to be thankful for about her, even though she had serious, serious issues. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Anything I've left out from the book? Um, murder, she wrote. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, that is a story about um, being watched by my paternal grandmother, who actually just passed away. Um, she She's an oddball, uh, <laughs> or was an oddball. So that's that the mother I, your mom had to put up with. This, this would be the mother that my dad had. Ah, uh, paternal. Was, okay, got it. Yeah, paternal. Sorry, okay, sorry. if I said much more. Paternal. Um, yeah, I, I think it was the one and only time that I was ever watched by her and, uh, you know, babysat by her. And I was so, I was maybe five or six and I was so terrified to be around her that I just pretended to sleep for four or five hours mm. um, while I was sick on her sofa. And it was just this really um, creepy memory I have of being at her home and just being incredibly uncomfortable and not wanting to be near her at all. Um, she wasn't a, a bad person by any way, just cold, extraordinarily cold. Mm. Well, and was she an immigrant? Nope. Huh. No, she wasn't. And, was, and did she have any relation to that uncle? She did not. No, mm. he's no biological relation to the family. But I mean, was he wasn't staying at the house at the time or anything or anything? No, like he would that? have been from my mother's side. 
God, how awful. Well, how have you found uh, pulling, putting all this out there? Uh, it's It's been actually pretty dang fantastic. Oh, like good. The, the feedback that I've gotten from people has been uh, has made it all worth it. Just so many people are like, this was my childhood. Yeah. Um, you feel like I can feel these things. You make me feel like I can be honest and open about these things. And, and that's the, the one and only reason I did this. And as you go towards the EMDR book, uh, what do you do you what do you want people to learn from that one? Oh God, uh, you know, I mean, this is this is very different. You know, I, I, my first book is made up of twenty years of journal entries, mm. and this one I'll be writing as I experience it. So I think that it'll be even more uh, emotionally raw and in the moment. And uh, I just hope I don't make it too much for people because it's it's a lot. So I feel um, um, a little intimidated right now, but I know that it'll be really helpful. I, I, I think it, it's a great thing to put out there because it gives people a sense of, you know, people are always wondering if they're doing enough or they're getting the right kind of work. Or And when it comes to trauma therapy, you're doing the work and this is what the work looks like. And if they're not doing that work, that trauma is still sitting there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they and they need to kind of have this measuring stick to understand that while your situation may not be as intense and it may not be the same as yours, Aaron's, but it it's going to be something. My thing, I I kept dropping into uh, traumatic what uh, uh, Alan Shore calls traumatic dead spots, where I just mm-hmm. would lose track of time and space. Literally, I'd just be sort of out of it. And uh, my therapist would all of a sudden go, okay, time's up. I'd be like, what? What What, what happened? <laughs> what just happened? I, it's almost like being in a hypnotic state. It's very strange. And and those dead spots and those have been described from trauma. They're dissociative spots. And uh, it just shrunk and went away. But it, but it was a source of immense anxiety and panic because my brain didn't want to go near that. Does that make sense yeah. to you, someone that was doing this work? Oh my god, that makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah. So your brain is is having other symptoms by virtue of not having uh, some unpleasant symptom that trauma has left behind. And the other thing I had, and you tell me if you had some of this too, because it sounds like you were set up for this. I I didn't have a good connection to my primary emotions. Feelings were sort of way off in the distance and hard to identify, and weren't very rich. Did you have some of that stuff? I did, yeah. Uh, certain feelings I was were inaccessible. You know, my therapist would often say to me, "You have difficulty expressing the exact um, tone and tenor of your anger. It's always mm. just rage, mm-hmm. and it's always just a flat explanation of rage." Yeah. And through EMDR, I've definitely been experiencing more levels of that. Right. That's the trauma again, and and it's 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 red light, green light, and and that and rage. Your brain doesn't like rage either because it feels murderous and destructive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you'll avoid that until you can't, and then boom, here it comes. How, how are you are you expressing anger now? Are you able to say I'm angry about and really express that to somebody? Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. But without being rageful, anger. without being rageful. You know, I mean, and that's um, that's something that I'm still working through because this is all incredibly yeah, it's new. new. So you know, I kind of have to um, come to terms with you know moving through the, the dangerous part of that. I, you know, I don't want to allow this rage to um, overtake me and, and uh, become problematic. Let's do one back, one more round on destroyed relationships. Other than your paradigm, <laughs> uh, Tucker Max, what, what other sorts of relationships uh, 
sort of uh, drama were you creating? Yeah, I mean, I would always get into friendships with incredibly uh, charismatic, sociopathic people. Mm. Um, I, I remember once I was uh, best friends with and living with a sex addict who mm -hmm. was just constantly destroying people's marriages. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I was her best buddy and I would just sort of, you know, hang out and be party to this and think, you know, why am I so drawn to this person? Mm. You know, she would just go out there and, you know, destroy a marriage and then destroy this person and destroy that person. And, um, you know, there were always these incredibly charismatic people around me who are incredibly controlling. And I was either, you know, depending on where I was in the cycle, I was either the best person ever and their best friend or, you know, the worst person. Just so people understand, let's take that one, for instance, how does that play out? Where does that person end up? You know, I mean, I think my tack has been always to get to the point where I've had enough and then hit bottom and move forward. No, no, no and that, that's where do you end up with them? Because I'm thinking of some of the characters in Sex in the City and they were so sick. I, I kept telling everybody, these, these things, these people do not end up in good places. And I wonder if you, without revealing too much, you know, a, a, a divulging somebody's identity or something, can you tell people where some of these sociopaths end up? You know, these people that, you know, I, I, again, I think of Samantha and Sex in the City. Uh, you know, it's crazy. I used to watch that show and think, she is so sick. There is something so wrong with this woman. Yeah. Why is she ever zero? Yeah. I don't yeah. get that. Yeah. And the real person, the real person died of drug addiction. Yeah, oh the wow! Actual, the actual really? woman, yeah, the actual woman that was that was fashioned after was a sex addict, drug addict who died of drug addiction. Okay, well that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Did, where that did your did your do you know where your sociopath ended up? Uh, she, uh, you know, every now and then I Google her. Mm -hmm. She is uh, sadly a marriage and family therapist. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my. Well, I mean, there is such a thing as recovery from that stuff. Th there is. Okay. Uh, it, it, hopefully, really so. indeed. I mean, if she's not going to SLA meetings and things, uh, interesting. It, it's not, you know, <laughs> sociopaths often don't get better, but but they can. They can in the, in the setting of uh, of uh, addiction recovery. So, uh, wow, you can pick them. I know, right? Is my picker broken or what? Uh, uh, yeah, enough, uh, well, I'm it's it's not I'm just broken married. though; it's world class. I mean, you pick Tucker Max, you pick oh, people that become professionals. Oh my god, and professionals know, that are psychopaths! Woo! My husband now is like the most amazing man, and our relationship was so uncomfortable for me. Ah, you know, because I kept sitting around waiting for him to turn into this monster, and it just never happened. And right. I'm like, when are you going to start lying? And he never, you know, it, and you know his love for me was always just so stable and so you know so healthy and his boundaries were always so healthy and uh, you know i mean it was so so incredibly uncomfortable but i'm i'm really glad that i worked through that discomfort because you you're getting better with it yeah yeah did, did you experience it as boring or as smothering or there's various different ways to get experienced no, I was just, I was terrified always. Fear, you know, just fear. Why is this going to happen? Just, just straight up fear. So um, catastrophizing. And, yeah. Yeah. And I would try to leave him and, and break things off all the oh, time. Oh, so it's, a, it's abandonment fear. A, yeah. A fear of abandonment. Um, Do you think you had some borderline features yourself? I mean, it's, it's entirely possible. Yeah. Because uh, the abandonment preoccupation and some of the rage stuff that's sometimes called borderline rage. And uh, I, I'm not saying you had that person. You clearly did not have that personality disorder. But when you have trauma, to have borderline stuff is pretty common. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. When you're stressed out, I know I definitely have, um, avoidance issues, yeah. deep avoidance issues. Well, but it sounds like they're mostly, well, they're certainly manageable now. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> I think, uh, diagnoses are, are, oh, oh, not abs- useful, not terribly useful. No, 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 no. I hundred percent agree. hundred percent. I'm not, I'm not saying that to, to put a pejorative at all. In fact, what, what I, I'd rather, I'm trying to put it in a really, uh, inspiring spin because a lot of people get, um, get labeled with diagnoses like that and do not do the work that you did to get through it. They just think, oh, I'm broken and that's it. I've got this diagnosis and forget it. But uh, oh, yeah. it, 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 it's so – yeah. I, I mean it, you know, people with a true personality disorder sometimes aren't treatable. That's such a thing. But most of us just have traits. You know, we all have traits of – and we're all sort of these days all narcissistic of one type or another and mm-hmm. a lot of trauma. And so naturally there are those sorts of traits that go, are associated with those traumas. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Yeah. I think, you know, given the right stressors, we can all be everything. Yeah, well, that, exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, though though, to have a true disorder, uh, y- you have to have certain genetic makeup, we think, and, and, and although it's, it's always a mix of, you know, the environment and the genes. Well, listen, congratulations on this. I mean, it's very inspiring what you've done and what you're doing, and I look forward to talking to you about the EMDR book because I think that's going to be crucially important. Uh, this, I think, will help a lot of not just women but men and women who feel the way you felt, which is so, 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 so common these days uh, when people are not uh, given what they need in childhood. They're given the opposite of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. And thank it's called much. The Bad One, a memoir about growing up a goat and the scapegoating mechanism, everybody. If you're engaged in it, uh, please curtail it. And scapegoating is one of the worst things that humans do. And I understand it's a way of focusing on somebody else so you don't uh, unleash your own aggression uh, on one another. But how about you You know, get more honest about what you're actually feeling and stop projecting it and acting it out on other people. All right, Aaron Tyler, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You got it. Well done. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Thank you.